At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Reveal, Stories with Purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Hey, good morning. Great to see you guys. So, uh, Thanks for being here this morning. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it to Luke chapter 16, and uh, we're going to jump into God's Word together. But before we do that, I actually uh, want to give us an opportunity. This is our live service, and so we have a, a whole host of our congregation, as you've probably heard, that are joining us online. And I would just love if we could give them a little love this morning and just clap and let them know how much we appreciate them and that, yeah. I know, I know it's hard being uh, apart and throughout this season, um, but I'm grateful that even via technology, we can still uh, come to God's word together and hear what he has to say and let the Holy Spirit work, uh, work through us this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you could actually hop on your phone uh, and follow along that way. And if you actually download the Bible app, uh, in the bottom little corner, there's a more button. And if you click events, you can search for Woodside Bible and you can actually find our sermon notes uh, as well as we kind of jump into uh, this passage as we're finishing up our series that we've called Revealed, where we've been looking at the parables of, of Jesus. And so we uh, come to a great one this morning. If I were to ask you, who are the people that God blesses? What do you think that your answer would be? Like, who, who are the people that God shows his favor to and who might be the people that God really doesn't show his favor to? Or, or maybe I'd, I'd put the question to you this way. What does real faith look like? What does it produce in the life of someone who truly believes and seeks to follow the way of Jesus? What does God's blessing look like for someone that truly believes? Last uh, weekend, uh, on the 4th of July weekend, I uh, discovered something that was really fun. I discovered that Sirius XM Radio was giving a free preview for uh, the weekend. And so I, I had, uh, clicked on my car and I found, and all of a sudden I was open access to all these different stations that I never get to listen to. And it was really exciting. I discovered that they actually have an entire channel just dedicated to the band U2. It like made my whole weekend. I just cranked U2 all weekend, listened to all their different songs. It was awesome. Uh, but as I was driving around uh, during the weekend, I uh, was flipping through the stations and I came across uh, a station that was dedicated uh, to probably America's most famous pastor. And me being a pastor, I'm always curious. And so he was in the middle of a teaching and I thought, oh, great, I'll listen to this for a few minutes. And as I was listening to his teaching, it was kind of focused around the one I happened to hear about serving behind the scenes and how important it is to serve behind the scenes. And he was making some points and telling some great uh, stories, and I was kind of listening to it. And then he kind of built to the grand crescendo of his message. And kind of in this moment, in his kind of big uh, kind of application point, he essentially kind of brought the idea that those who are faithful behind the scenes, that 
actually serve, that, that, that show this genuinely, that God would work to bring about their destiny in a way that they would flourish in life. And, and he said, when you follow and serve behind the scenes, there's things God will do in your life where you might get that promotion that you've been longing for, or your bank account might be filled up, or that person that you've been praying for might get healed, or a relationship that's broken might get restored. And as I was listening to this kind of sermon, as he got to this point, I thought, huh. And I, I kind of had this teaching that I was going to do in the back of my mind. I thought, oh, so the point is that those who have real faith, they're the people that receive all the good things in life. But if you don't have real faith, you don't receive those things. If you don't get the promotion, if your bank account isn't full, if you struggle in your relationship, that's not who God favors and that's not who God blesses. And unfortunately, I think his idea is typical oftentimes of kind of the ethos of Christianity that exists in our world and society. That the people that are successful in life, whose relationships seem to flourish, who seem to have the right jobs or the right su success, those are the people that God really blesses. They're the people that experience God's favor. But if you're not so much, well then God really doesn't bless you. But is that true? Is that what really real, genuine faith looks like? How do, we, how do we know what God's favor is or isn't? There was a group of people in Jesus' day who had a very similar idea of God and how he worked. They were known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees taught a way of following God in the Old Testament law that if you obeyed God's rules, if you did everything that God asked of you, that you would receive God's blessing, and that the blessing that you could receive is wealth and increase and status. And the Pharisees often prized these things as symbols of what it actually meant to really have genuine faith and to walk and follow what God had told them to do. But in Luke chapter 16, Jesus actually begins to challenge that idea, and he begins to have us think about who are the people that God favors, and what is the way of God's kingdom. The story that you heard Caleb just read, that we're going to explore in a minute, actually comes in a little bit larger context of Jesus' teaching. Jesus begins in Luke 16, essentially telling the story of the steward of a wealthy man. And this steward essentially kind of uses some opportunities in order to gain some favor. We won't go into that. We're only looking at one story this morning. But Jesus, in verse 13, draws a significant conclusion out of that story that actually influences is the story that he says. It says this in Luke 16, 13. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus' application point that he kind of makes is when it comes to the things of the world, there really isn't a both and, it's an either or. You're either on the side of God and his kingdom and his values, or you pursue the world's values, its kingdom, what it says is right. And if you follow one, then you can't genuinely follow the other. Now, Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees in this story, they don't like this idea. And it actually says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. 
They look at Jesus and they say, no, there's no way. If you really follow the way of God, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed financially. You'll be blessed in your life. You'll receive God's favor. Those are the marks of what genuine faith should look like. And so they push back against this idea. But Jesus says in verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And Jesus will continue on in the next few verses, essentially saying, listen, your ideas expose your heart, that you're really not about God, but you, you are really about your own status, your own wealth. And Jesus then says, well, God's word isn't voided. It still continues, and it's actually fulfilled in me. But then in verse 19, he tells a story to go back and drive home the idea and the challenge. And this is the story that we want to look at today. Now, the story that Jesus tells is kind of a common framework in his day. He's kind of using what might have been a common narrative, and he kind of uses it and brings his own flavor to it to kind of drive the point of where is your heart really at? And what do you really think God's blessing and favor looks like? Look at verse 19 with me. We'll pick up the story and kind of unpack it together. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Sumptuously just means a lot. He just enjoyed a lot of good food. And at his gate was, a laid, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Jesus begins this story by setting up a dichotomy between two people. The first man he describes at the beginning, we simply are referred to as a rich man. But Jesus wants to note that this guy isn't just rich, like he is loaded rich, like super wealthy. So he says that he dresses himself in purple. Now, purple would have been a very, very expensive dye in Jesus' day. So to wear clothes of purple would have, been, uh, would have been very expensive. And it was often used or a symbol of royalty in that day. So this dude, like, this dude is dressed fly. Like, he has the best outfit. But then Jesus says he's not only dressed in purple, he has fine linen. This is a reference to the undergarment that he would have wear, worn. And to wear uh, the, the finest undergarment was to wear uh, essentially uh, an undergarment made out of Egyptian cotton, which would have been the softest and nicest, and it would have felt the best on your skin, and you would have worn that under your clothes. So listen, listen, this guy's so rich, even his underwear is fancy. Like that's, that's super rich. And not only that, he, he eats and feasts every day. In a culture where feasting would have been a very rare occasion, where there was not the abundance of food like we have in our culture, this dude lives it up every single day. Like, the picture here that we have of this guy is like the picture of the uber-rich. The uber, incredibly wealthy and powerful. He would have been an extremely um, important figure in his day. Like this, this is the dude you follow on Instagram, right? Like this is the guy who has five different pairs of different Jordans. His shoes are incredible. You love to follow him because he seems to be traveling all over the world all the time, eating at the best restaurants. And you look and say like, man, I wish I had that life. Like I wish I could do that, right? Like that's this guy. Now, contrasted to that, Jesus says there was a man named Lazarus. 
Now, what's interesting about Lazarus is in all of Jesus's parables, he's the only one that gets a name. And his name is from the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means God is my help. But the problem with Lazarus is he sure doesn't look like God is very much his help, right? The text says that Lazarus was laid outside of the rich man's gate. Literally, he, he, he couldn't get there himself. Someone had to bring him and set him and lay him outside of the gate. Not only that, Lazarus is covered in sores. So he has some sort of ailment, some sort of skin disease that covers his body in sores. He's so hungry that he's literally willing to eat the man's garbage. Like the scraps from his food. He just wants something to eat. Of course, he doesn't get it from the man. Worse than that, he would have been viewed as unclean, not only for his skin condition, but the fact that it says that dogs would come and lick his sores. And dogs were unclean animals. So he would have been kept on the outskirts of the community and viewed as unclean. The picture Jesus here is, this is a guy, it doesn't, he doesn't get much lower on the social status, status pole. He's sick, he's destitute, he has nothing. He's literally laid outside a gate and he receives nothing from society. All right, if this guy was around today, he's the guy you might see holding a sign somewhere or sitting with a cup whose clothes are ragged, whose skin is broken and cracked from being exposed to the elements, whose hair's matted. He probably smells like he hasn't showered in a few days and he's kind of the people that most people just walk by. And so Jesus sets up this contrast between this uber-rich and this uber-poor man. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and those that would have followed their teaching, they would have looked at the rich man and they would have said, that's a man that God blesses. Lazarus, that's not a man that God blesses. If God blesses you, you'll have the wealth and the status and you'll, you'll have the success. But Jesus, in his story, as he sets up this contrast, he's about to flip it. Jesus loves a good plot twist. And in this story, there's a good plot twist. Look at verse 22. It says, The poor man died, again, highlighting his poverty, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So we see in the story now a great flip or a great reversal within Jesus' story where Lazarus existed in his earthly life in torment and pain and suffering. The text says that upon his death, he's carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish faith and he's a symbol of God's blessing and, and God's world and God's reign, but he's also a symbol of the great banquet. There was the idea that in the, in the world to come, there would be a great banquet where everyone would feast at God's table. And Abraham is a symbol of that banquet. And it says literally that Lazarus is carried to his side, or some of your translations might say the word bosom. Now that seems like a weird right word, like who uses the word bosom, right? But it's actually a reference to a specific place of honor at a dining room table, 
When people in that culture would eat dinner together, there was a space reserved next to the host on the couch. They would often lay or recline on couches. That was specifically a place of honor. John sits in that place in the Last Supper with Jesus, where it says he was by his or at his side. So the image here is that Lazarus, though he suffered in his earthly life and torment, is carried to the place of honor at the great banquet that is to come. The rich man, though, he has an opposite experience of the great reversal. Where Lazarus was carried, the text says that he was buried. Not only was buried, he was in Hades being in torment. So in his earthly life, he experienced the banquet, the feasting, the goodness, but now he's experiencing the torment. While Lazarus is carried up, this man is buried and brought down and highlighted his suffering. And we see a great reversal and flip happen in the text. But the rich man, in his suffering, says in verse 23, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What we see in this statement and this simple request is that what this man was in his previous life has only continued to be solidified now in the afterlife, where he enjoyed the place of honor, he enjoyed the respect, he enjoyed the social status that he enjoyed in that life. He expects the same treatment now in the afterlife, and he's in shock that he's in a place of torment. But instead of recognizing his fallenness and his brokenness and how he had turned his back in his earthly life, he only continues in his pride and self-righteousness. In fact, we see in the text, the first thing he begins with in the statement is Father Abraham. He calls on his ethnic privilege as a Jew and says, Abraham is surely my father, therefore he must respond to me because of my heritage and who I am. Not only that, he then plays up his economic and social privilege that he prayed in the previous life. He then tells Father Abraham to send Lazarus to help relieve his suffering. Notice, he never addresses Lazarus. He never addresses Lazarus in the thing. He only addresses Abraham, and even now, he's commanding Lazarus to do what he desires, not recognizing his own plight or his own issue. He thinks he can just get what he wants just like he did in his earthly life. But Abraham gives us a response, and it's this response that really in some ways is the challenging heart of the story. Look in verse 25. It says, but Abraham said, child. I love Abraham here. He's, he comes down to his level for a moment. Child. He says, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Abraham highlights two things within his response to this man. The first thing he highlights is that in the afterlife, in the days to come, in the world to come, there is a great reversal. 
That in the coming kingdom, the values of God are what reigns, not the values of the world. And so what Abraham essentially looks at him and he says, and he says, listen, in your earthly life, you received the good things of the world. You received the things that you desired. You got what you wanted. But those things you valued and prized and enjoyed, that's not the way things work in God's kingdom. And where Lazarus did not experience the things of the world, where he experienced the torment and pain in God's kingdom, he receives comfort. I don't think what Jesus' point in telling this story is simply that, well, the rich go to hell and the poor go to heaven. That's not the point he's trying to make. What he's trying to make is remind us that the values of God's kingdom are contrary and opposite to the values of the world around us. In fact, this is a theme that's found throughout Jesus' teaching in multiple places and occasions. In fact, in one of his most famous sermons in, uh, in Luke chapter 6, known as the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus begins that key teaching with this idea that God's values are different than the world's values. He starts that passage by saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. He would later say, Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are filled. Woe to you who laugh now. See, Jesus continually reminds us that the values of the kingdom are not the values of the world. And essentially, a man who had built his life trusting and believing the values of the world was now experiencing the opposite. He was experiencing the fruit of a life of what he trusted and believed in. But the second thing that he reminds him is not only that in the world to come, the values are flipped. What he reminds them of is in the world to come is actually the permanent world that will exist for eternity. That's why he says... There's this great chasm that exists. And chasm, you can think of it like the Grand Canyon, this great divide that exists, that in God's new world that he is bringing, where righteousness and justice and goodness dwell, there will not be a space and sin will be removed and separated from God's good creation. And it will be permanent. And because it will be permanent... What your heart treasures and values will be sealed in eternity. And I think the first thing that we need to see that Jesus draws out of this story is that our final destiny is the result of our belief. Jesus wants to remind the Pharisees that what you trust and what you believe in now ultimately speaks to your final destiny and what your place will be in the world to come. He highlights for them this man who placed his value in the values of the world and it caused him to be uncompassionate, unloving towards the poor and the marginalized and the broken. The point that Jesus looks towards is to say the fruit of your life actually displays what you genuinely trust in and believe. And is it God and his kingdom, or is it the world and its kingdom and values? You see, true, genuine faith in the Bible always results in actions. 
It is not our actions that save us. It is not what we do. It is our faith alone in Jesus alone that brings salvation in our life. But genuine faith always results in the fruit of a life lived in line with God's priorities and kingdom. That's why James, Jesus' brother, would write and challenge the church and say, what good is it, in James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, genuine faith produces a life that seeks to live out the values of God's kingdom. This is what Jesus always points us towards, that his kingdom is different. It provides for us a different vision, and therefore, true, genuine faith in Jesus will result in a different sort of life lived. And that's the picture Jesus says. There are those like the rich man who value and pursue the things of the world and display that they genuinely don't believe and God and his kingdom and God's values. And there's those that genuinely trust in God, where God is their only help, like Lazarus, who experience the comfort and blessing of the kingdom to come. C.S. Lewis famously once noted that there are two types of people in the world. There are those who look at God and say, Lord, thy will be done. And there are those that God looks at and says, thy will be done. And he goes on to say that hell is always a choice where we choose our own way, our own self-reliance, our own values over the way of God and his kingdom. And Jesus wants to say, what's the fruit of your life evidence? Does it evidence your genuine belief in Jesus? Or does it evidence your self-reliance, your pride, your self-centeredness? You see, The reality is that this parable that Jesus gives isn't actually just a parable about the afterlife. It's actually a parable critiquing the way that Jesus' opponents chose to live their life now because the way they lived their life displayed what they truly trusted and believed in. They had built a religious system that sought their own religious piety at the neglect of God's kingdom values. And if we're not careful, we can often do the same. And that's why we must continually evaluate the fruit of our own lives and say, what does what I do display about what I genuinely believe? Because what we believe and trust in, and the point is, is solidified when it comes to eternity. This man's trust in himself is only solidified. Lazarus' hope only in God is solidified in eternity. So we have the choice now to see whether we genuinely believe and trust in God or whether we believe in ourselves. So what do we do, though? How can we learn to believe and practice God's kingdom values? Well, Jesus actually points us towards the answer in this passage. Look what happens next in the story in verse 27. So Abraham says, here's the great reversal. Your place is fixed. And the man responds in 27, then I beg you, father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. 
So again, the man goes out of his self-reliance and his self-position and says, get Lazarus to do what I want. If you won't save me, send him to my brothers so that they can know. And this is Abraham's response. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, what, what uh, Jesus so greatly reminds us in this story when it comes to the evaluation of our lives and to know what is the way of God's kingdom is that God has already provided us what we need. You might say it with, this way, that revelation has been given to help direct us, that God has actually given us already and revealed to us the way of his kingdom. When he refers here to they have Moses and the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures and essentially saying, listen, your brothers, they already have the way of God's kingdom. God's already revealed that to them. They don't trust it. They don't believe it. They don't seek to follow it. And Jesus, just a few verses later, remembered that when he came, he didn't come to nullify or to remove the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, to show it in completion and what God was going to bring about through his Messiah. And so you and I, on the other side of Jesus, we even have the fuller revelation of who God is and the fuller way to live and engage and live in God's kingdoms and to trust in what God has done for us. And he essentially says, listen, they already have God's revelation they already know. The problem is they're not choosing to trust it and to actually follow it. You see, as a pastor, I hear people all the time when it comes to issues of faith, when it comes to issues of trusting God, who will say things like, well, if God would just reveal himself to me, if he would just show me himself, if God would just write it in the clouds, then I would know. If God would just come to me, and I hear these things oftentimes as excuses for why we don't really believe or why we don't really obey. It seems fuzzy or I don't really understand. But what I see in all those things and all those issues is what we do is we look at God and we say, you come to me on my terms, God. You show up the way I want you to, then I'll believe. And just like the rich man, we put ourselves at the center of the story. And God looks back at us and he says, hey, have I not done enough? I've literally given you miracles. I've literally revealed my word to you through my prophets. I've literally sent my son to die for you and to rise again. I've showed myself time and time and time again. If you're not going to trust that, what are you going to trust? You see, we don't have an excuse, friends. God has revealed himself to us. The question is whether or not we will actually trust him and seek to obey him. And I think in many ways, that's the large point that Jesus is trying to point towards. That real faith, genuine faith, obeys God's word. It seeks to follow what God says, and it seeks to trust him and live that out. Real faith results in obedience. And it's that faith and obedience that results in the life that God promises, not now, not based on the values of the world, but one day for eternity in his kingdom. That's who God blesses. That's where God's blessing is poured out. 
Don't believe or sell yourself short that the obedience to God's word will just produce a good job or a good promotion or a good relationship or some more money. God has way better stuff for you than that. He has an eternity of joy and love and peace and life and goodness forever. Don't settle for a promotion. Go after the eternal thing. That's what Jesus wants to say. And when you trust God and you learn to live his way, you'll begin to experience that now and it will carry on for eternity. And so Jesus ends, I think, by challenging all of us as he ends this parable. He says, and he said, no, Father Abraham. So he comes back and he responds. He's like, no way, God. No, 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 no. No way, Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I think Jesus ends with such a great challenge here. Because I think what he's saying in many ways is, what are you going to do with what God's actually revealed? And I think as he closes this parable, he's actually pointing to the greatest revealing of God's promises, of God's good life, of the blessing that God pours out. And it's not about here and now, it's about the kingdom that is to come. And that's why he says, listen, if they're not going to believe someone that rises from the dead, why does he say that? Because if you continue reading the story, you realize that there is going to be someone who rises from the dead. There is going to be someone who came to this earth, Jesus, to live the life you couldn't, who died and took on death and sin and suffering himself on our behalf and then rose from the dead to say, listen, I've defeated that. It's not about this world. It's about my kingdom. That's where my blessing is found that's where my favor is found. That's the fullness of the revelation that God brings. Will you trust in that? See, God's revealed himself through the resurrection. He's revealed where his favor lies. He reveals where the blessing comes. And all you and I have to do in response is merely trust in him. See, the point here isn't, okay, I got to figure out how to do all this stuff. I got to figure it out. what What do I got to do? What do I got to do? No, no, no. The greater point is you say, look at your life and say, what am I doing now? Is that showing what I genuinely believe? And if it's not, the starting point is, well, then I got to go figure out what to do next. The starting point is say, do I genuinely trust in Jesus? Do I genuinely trust in God's word and what he has revealed? Do I genuinely trust in Jesus's resurrection from the dead as the salvation for my life? And if you do that, and then you'll love the poor. You'll have compassion for the least of these. You'll help the needy. Because real faith obeys God's word. If you have real faith, you'll obey. So the question that you have to ask yourself is, if God's really revealed himself, what do I genuinely believe today? Start there. And let God continue to do his work in your life. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful and thankful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. That not only do we have this word that shows who you are, that you 2,000 years ago, you came, you lived, you died, you rose again so that we can receive 
the inheritance and the riches and the blessings and the favor that God's promises. But God, I confess on my behalf of myself and on all of us here that we are quick and prone to trust ourselves. We are quick to trust the things of the world over you. We are quick to prize and treasure our comfort and our values over your values and your ways. We're sorry, God, that there's areas even of our hearts right now where we don't genuinely believe what you have so graciously revealed. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for everyone in the room that where there are those areas, would you reveal them to us that we might turn back to Christ, that we might trust in his saving work, that we might seek to believe in a way that continues to evidence itself in a life lived under your rule and reign in your kingdom. Help us to be a church, God, that doesn't just set up religious systems that make us look good, but who genuinely follow the way of your kingdom to serve and love those around us that are in need. So we just continue to submit ourselves before you to place our faith in you. Even now as we sing, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you continue to work and call us to be the people that you desire for us to be. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.